You're listening to the Berkman Audio Fishbowl from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Each week, we feature conversations with leading cyber scholars, entrepreneurs, activists, and policymakers as they explore the bleeding edge of the internet and technology, democracy, law, and society. For more information on the Berkman Center and for more programs like this, visit cyber.law.harvard.edu. So thank you, everyone, and uh, welcome to those who are new, and welcome back to those um, who are old. There are obviously some uh, thank yous here also from the Safety Task Force Merit and the students who worked on the task force. Thank you for all you did, um, and importantly to Jess Tatlock, um, who may be announcing that she's moving to another job, but she has done a wonderful job on the Safety Task Force. Thank you. Um, so. Uh, what we thought we would do is just take you through some of the findings of the uh, task force report, and then um, Dina Sacco will pose a question for the group. Um, but uh, I'll start with the background, then uh, I will ask Dana Boyd some questions about the research. I will try. Uh, and then, then turn it over to, uh, to Dina. So the, the background of the Internet Safety Technical Task Force, as I think many people know, uh, is worth restating. So I think it sets the context for the work that we did um, the way it came about is that MySpace, the large social network, entered into a joint statement with um, the bulk of the attorneys general, 49 of them in the United States, and the statement included a series of commitments to do things, including using technologies in various ways to protect kids, but it also included a commitment to forming a task force that um, uh, we ultimately were asked to chair and uh, convening this group over the course of a year. The output was a report due on December 31st, 2008, which we sent. And the, the job was basically to assess the risks to kids of unwanted um, contact and, uh, and content online, um, contact primarily of the sexual predation uh, variety and content uh, primarily of the pornographic. Um, the emphasis of the attorneys general and also of the um, uh, the joint statement really was on social networks. As a first instance, we expanded the scope somewhat to say um, that these risks are internet-wide, not just social network-wide. So um, our broader scope um, uh, included not just social network, but environments like IM and chat and so forth, which we'll hear more um, more from Dana on in a moment. Um, the way we did our work was uh, that there were uh, 30 organizations that turned into 29 because um, one of them bought another one. AOL bought Bebo during the course of the year. So it ended up with 29 organizations. Um, you can go to our uh, website and, and uh, we can, in fact, show you the, um, uh, the participants from the ISTTF uh, site. But... Um, the, they included all of the big um, social networks. They included many of the, uh, the uh, technology companies like um, uh, Google and Microsoft and others who have um, both technologies in this area but also um, some environments in which kids uh, play. It also invo in involved a number of the D.C.-based um, technology policy groups and people who work on Internet safety for kids, the, um, uh, and NICMIC, as it's known, the um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and so forth. Um, it also invo involved um, a series of firms who create technologies um, to protect kids explicitly. So um, Aristotle IDR uh, Sentinel and others who make technologies for kids who sell them to the social networks were also part of the, the task force. We created um, uh, two boards that were outside the task force but which advised it. Um, one, the research advisory board, which Dana chaired, um, which is a group of leading uh, internet researchers. Um, Esther, I think, is a member of that research advisory board, the, um, in our view, uh, best and most thoughtful of the um, scholars who study, particularly in the United States, the um, risks 
risks to um, to children. And the idea of the research advisory boards is was to frame out the um, the issues as crisply as we could, and to make it a data-driven process. I think this is where this process may have um, differed from some of the other uh, political undertakings in this area. Our goal was first to look at the data very carefully, and then based on the risks that the data show, um, to figure out what the best solutions would be. On the solutions side, we convened a technical advisory board. The notion behind the TAB was to get computer scientists from uh, universities, from uh, company labs, from the, uh, those who serve the law enforcement community to uh, assess a series of technologies. We put out an RFP to the world. We got 40 plus technology submissions from people who make technologies that are intended to help um, keep kids safer and the TAB, the Technical Advisory Board, reviewed those technologies and then reported back um, to the task force. Uh, that was the, the overall structure. We met our deadline of December 31st, 2008. Um, the report which you can uh, download now. It's 278 pages, something on that order, in its full version um, uh, here online at cyber.law.harvard.edu pub release slash ISTTF. Um, there's an executive summary if you want to read something somewhat shorter. But um, uh, what we'll do is lead you through some key parts of it today and then uh, leave off with some questions. So, um, Dana, we're going to share the mic here. Um, Dana Boyd, are you Dr. Dana Boyd? I am Dr. You are Dr. Dana Boyd. Dana Boyd, who has um, uh, familiar to everyone here um, as a fellow of the Berkman Center, um, but also uh, uh, really one of the leading researchers for a long time, studying how young people use social networks in particular, but the internet more broadly. Someone who brings real integrity and seriousness of purpose to her work, um, and uh, in many ways, just the perfect person to have chaired this research advisory board um, uh, that we have. We've been joined by Laura <laughs> DeBonis, the chair of the um, technical advisory board, um, who has made it through the snow from the wild to Beacon Hill or otherwise, um, and uh, we'll turn to her in a moment. So Dana, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about the research, and um, maybe you can tell us tell us what we found. So one of the big questions, of course, is um, uh, the risk that kids face with respect to um, sexual predation. So uh, the concern, I think, that animated this task force in the first instance was when young people are on social networks in particular, in the United States in particular, um, what is the likelihood that they will meet someone who will um, uh, chat them up in a social network and then do them harm in a physical, sexual way offline? And how do you contextualize let me, this? Let me start by actually giving some background to what we did and how we collected data for those who aren't familiar with the task force, and I'll answer your question directly. So not only did I gather some of the top researchers, I, I, my goal was to figure out who was doing research, who's looked at it over longer, period, longer periods of time, who was doing national sampling. We collected a group of researchers who primarily were quantitative scholars looking at these issues directly, primarily with large national samples, primarily funded by uh, organizations like the Department of Justice. And the nice thing is, is that we have, we were able to get all of their sort of public reports and work with all of their public materials, which is what's heavily cited within the task force report itself. But we were also get, able to get their sort of updates as they were going along and telling us what they were seeing, because most of them are engaged in current research projects. So sexual predation is one of the topics that has sort of come up over and over again um, over the years. And the thing that's really interesting is it's also been one of the topics that has been tracked over the years. And I don't have all of the numbers directly on me. I recommend reading the reports and reading the specific uh, studies. But one of the things that became really visible around predation um, that was 
deeply of interest to us is that the numbers of online predation pale in comparison to the numbers of anything related to offline sexual harm. Um, and that does not, this is not to negate it, um, but it was, you know, a big reality check to us is that, like, when, you, when we contacted um, all of the organizations who work with uh, violence and rape against children, um, we found that they're, they're primarily still seeing harm primarily in the home. It is primarily still uh, family-related. Um, even offline, it is very rarely stranger-related. Okay, so we were like, okay, this... This is known about the offline, but this task force is specifically about the online. So let's look at the slices of cases that are about the online. The study has looked at it from two different directions. Uh, one was interviewing of kids themselves doing uh, uh, random sampling on national, on national scale and asking them about all forms of sexual solicitation, including, you know, um, have you ever received an unwanted uh, sexual message? Um, you know, if so, w what did you respond to it? You know, what, was it threatening? These kinds of questions. There were also studies that were done of... Um, based on, uh, on arrest records, based on cases that have actually been brought to that. So there's two different kinds of studies that are brought forth. The thing that comes out really solidly is one, um, yes, kids do receive sexual messages um, of different forms online. Um, most of them are single messages. They're not repeatedly from the same person. The most common response consistently from kids is to ignore it. Um, and they don't tend to get repeated. There's a small, smaller se section of those that do get repeated over a period of time, and some of which are, are considered aggressive or scary. Um, those are more likely to be reported, um, needless to say, than the ones who, that are, um, they're more likely reported to a parent or an authority than the other one. Um, we there's very few number of cases, and when you're doing that kind of sampling, it's very hard to get your percentages. There, there's so few cases of going that direction of cases we know from the solicitation of the random, when we do this random sampling, to something that results in an offline contact. But there are some, and I'll come back to them. On the other hand, we have um, a set number of cases that were, that, that have been studied that uh, were federal um, prosecutors, uh, different kinds of things there. So there's a combination of looking at these data, and this is about all internet activity. The thing is, is that you want to see it over time, and you know, the social network sites have it, weren't there five years ago. We know that sexual solicitations of all forms have gone down um, on national samplings over the years. Um, but it's really hard to tease out what's going on with the cases themselves. So that's sort of tricky. But of the cases that we can, that we do know that are happening, there's a pattern that really strongly emerges. And that is that uh, the vast majority of the cases that result in, this, in, in uh, prosecution um, that get reported at that level involve um, young people who are primarily teenagers, so primarily high school age, not younger, um, primarily uh, knowing that they are meeting up with uh, an adult, primarily male, um, for sexual purposes. And over 70% over of them meet up repeatedly with the same individual. Um, and um, it follows a, a different but equally disturbing model that um, of statutory rape, uh, similar type of pattern. This is not the dateline model. Most of these cases are 20-something men, teenage, primarily girls, although there are also boys involved. Um, and the kids know what, know what they're doing. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they can consent. It doesn't mean there's not huge power problems, huge issues at play. But the kinds of issues that are there are very different to, to address than the kind of issues if you're talking about an abduction um, and, or you know, some, something that's totally just find somebody online kind of thing. Um, now, breaking them down from social network sites to, um, 
uh, to other forms of media. The published material it shows that things are still strongly um, online chat rooms. Um, to, a certain, to a lesser degree, I am. The numbers on social network sites were, have been extremely small. What's really interesting is, is that in all sorts of unpublished material that's coming down the line, it hasn't changed that much. The um, online chat rooms are still far more uh, likely to be connected with these cases. Um, and there's a lot of questions of why. One of them is, is that it's, the social network sites are being used en masse by a huge number of kids of diverse backgrounds, all sorts of other things. The, um, so the online chats are being used by a smaller percentage of kids and a particular subsection of kids. So the other thing to look at in all of this is that of the kids who um, received sexual solicitations, both the aggressive and the, and the one-offs, um, and the kids, and the, and the cases where there's um, uh, a prosecution involved, what were other factors at play? And one of the things that you see consistently is that the kids who are um, in trouble or at risk online uh, are not re representative of the whole population. They are much more likely to be at risk offline. They are much more likely to be, um, have been victims of sexual abuse in the home. They're much more likely to be, have um, drug and alcohol related issues. They're much more likely to have all sorts of school related issues. Um, so what you're seeing is, is an, another sort of twist of this, which is that the at-risk at behavior um, online and at-risk behavior offline are very deeply connected. Um, and it is, it's the activities online that these kids are engaged in that put them at risk. Or if, you know, what does it mean if you're responding to a stranger in these kind of cycles? I'll, okay, I'll stop. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question, if that's okay. Um, so there are other risks that kids face, but let me just ask you one follow-up on this particular point of sexual predation. So it would be no surprise to anyone who has read any news reports about this release or has um, uh, followed the controversy related to it that some people disagree very strongly with what you just said, mm -hmm. that there are a number of people, including some attorneys general who commissioned this in effect, um, who think this is um, downplaying the research. Um, that's one critique, right. downplaying the risk to kids. Right. A second critique is that what you're talking about is outdated, right. that the research, that, this is a quote from one attorney general. Um, and another risk, uh, uh, critique in the same vein is if you are an attorney general, um, and you are in the field, um, you are going online, for instance, and creating a social network profile, pretending to be a 14-year-old attractive young person, usually a girl in the uh, examples they've given us, um, you are immediately, in their view, bombarded by sexual solicitations by other people. So um, you've given a different picture than the one that many attorneys mm -hmm. general believe to be the true risk to kids. And really asking you as a parent, not so much as a researcher, how do you square what you found with what the attorneys general is saying, and how do you respond to the critiques that, one, it downplays, two, it's outdated, and three, it doesn't map to what they see when they create a profile in a social network? So I'm going to do this sort of in a different order. Um, I'll start with the outdated bit. Um, the research that we published uh, has been tracking it over a period of time, and so there are reports all the way up to um, the fall of this year, and we published this and wrote it in the fall. So the data is actually all the way up through 2008, and you're seeing a very consistent pattern over many, many different data sets with different sampling sizes. And to confirm that the pattern was continuing, I actually called up all of the researchers that have all of the reports on sexual predation in particular, although um, the other cases as well, and said, can you please do an early scan of your newest data set and see 
what you're finding. Is there any shocks I should be seeing down the line? And everybody consistently went back and said, no, it is continues to be consistent. We're seeing the same exact patterns. Researchers uh, love to go into their unpublished data and look at yeah, the data. Yeah, and they, of course, they won't send me, they won't let me talk about actual numbers that Except they're seeing, right, right which is quite public, right? Yeah. But the thing is, is that they're seeing we'll very, very consistent patterns. The thing that's, um, you know, they're seeing some, some slight shifts in, because, you know, which social network sites are more popular, you're seeing those slight shifts, but you're still seeing the same dynamic between the different things and the same factors at play. So the, uh, the, I find the outdated argument really frustrating because it is so consistent over time with large samples and, and very diverse data sets. Each individual one, one can question because there are you know, challenges within each specific data set. But the fact that it's consistent across the nation, across different sample sizes, makes me pretty confident in um, the findings. So that's that one component. Um, the other component of you know, where the, does this not match? One of the things I found really confounding was that there's a lot of questions. You know, we were pushed back and said, Oh well, you know, our our arrest records are so radically different. And I mean all of us all the researchers have been begging for arrest record data, trying desperately to saying, say, okay, please let us see what's going on. We only have this one data set that's really solidly arrest record data. If we're if you're seeing a different pattern, please provide us the data. We haven't seen that data. And you publicly are saying you want the we, data. we are publicly begging for that data and we would happily an analyze it. Um, since this report has come out, um, an individual actually went and looked at all press releases just in the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, um, and said, looked at all the press releases related to these cases in, you know, I forget exactly what period of time she did, and, and actually did an analysis of all of those cases. And so, of course, this is, you know, academics want to do a little bit of cringing because, you know, we don't know that the press releases are always the same, but let's just presume that most likely the press releases are some of the worst of the cases, which is usually what happens. What's and they also called this. This researcher also called up um, the um, Pens different Pennsylvania reporting systems for um, sexual harm and seeing very consistent patterns. So what was really interesting is that even in the 2008 data um, for Pennsylvania, almost all of the cases of arrests are. Um, when uh, a police officer goes and pretends to be a 13-year-old and is involved in a sting, that is almost all of the cases of arrest. Of the cases that involve an actual child, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, the vast majority of them are still, um, uh, even in 2008, they are still chat room and they are still IM. Um, there's a very small sample of them that are, um, uh, I think there were three cases that were um, involving one of the social network sites. And of those three cases, all of them fit the model of a teenager meeting up with a 20-something-year-old and doing so repeatedly, believing that they were in a relationship. So it's still a crime, but again, consistent with the data. So I'm, ha I'm also frustrated because I'm not, I haven't seen any inclination of data that doesn't match what we are seeing. Now, as far as the stings, um, yes, if you if you go online as a 12-year-old and put up naked photos of yourself and ask for sex of any form, I can guarantee you, you will find a creep online. Any one of you will. The thing is, is that teenagers aren't doing that. Teenagers are going online to hang out with their friends, to socialize with their friends. And they're, they don't want to talk to the creeps. Um, and I, you know, I, I did a lot of qualitative work, three years worth of qualitative work on teenagers and their practices in social network sites. And you know, I'd ask them, I said, you know, when you get one of these messages, what do you do? It's like, ew, you delete that. Why would you ever respond to it? And so what you're worried about is the small percentage of kids who are responding to it or who are engaging in similar practices that look like police officers trying to be teenagers. Um, so that those people, those kids who are putting up 
um, sexual images to seek older men, that's a big warning bell sign. And for me, the thing, the thing that's really frustrating is, is, is I see this as a, an absolutely um, radical moment where we can actually step in and do an intervention because those, those are the kids who desperately need our help. And I know that there are kids that are out there. I know that there are kids who are getting into, themselves into trouble. But we can't, if we assume that it's all kids and are trying to find solutions that are not looking at the at-risk behaviors or looking at the dynamics that are at play, then I worry that we're not addressing those kids who are deeply at risk. Okay, one last question for yes. you then. Shift to the other uh, directors here. Um, so sexual predation is one of the risks that we mm -hmm. looked at and one of the risks that kids face. You identified in the research two others, really, mm -hmm. around content, which the Attorney General asked us to focus on. But you also pulled out this notion of peer-to-peer -peer harms, often mm -hmm. um, described as bullying, other forms of psychological harm, sometimes bordering on the sexual as well, of course. Um, could you just, in a uh, relatively brief way, give a sense of the um, relative risks of these? Sure. Um, and, and uh, you know, in, in a way, sort of speaking, again, to me as a parent, right. how, much, how much should I be worried um, on these scores, and what are the real risks there? So the reason we originally pulled out bullying is that a lot of the research actually looks at um, uh, these things in, in tandem and in relation to one another. Um, because the other thing I didn't say in about sexual solicitation is that um, of sexual solicitation, which is sort of more directed and people know who they are, um, uh, almost half of it comes from uh, other minors. Um, and then next 40, 30 something percent comes from um, people that are tw like 18 to 24. So the thing is, is this is a question of what your peers are and there's a lot of sexual solicitation and bullying wrapped up into one another. Um, the data on bullying of all different forms, one of the problems with bullying um, is that we have very different definitions of what constitutes bullying. This is not uh, something that is resolved within the research. So you see radically different numbers about you know, how many kids are bullied online or offline. This is consistently a problem offline too for measuring this issue. That said, regardless of what definition of bullying you use, um, it becomes very clear that far more kids are um, affected by and victims of bullying in the online environment than, um, than victims of sexual solicitation. And they report it consistently also, like, it's, it's, it's huge, there can be huge um, ramifications from it. There's effects on schooling, there's effects on um, emotional adjustment of all forms. Um, and so the bullying comes out really strongly as being a huge factor. And so when you're talking to an average parent, and one of the reasons that we also brought this out is that like, for an average parent, you are much more, you should be much more concerned about what's going on about peer-to-peer -peer sexual solicitation in the schools and peer-to-peer -peer bullying um, that's happening with the kids that you're kids know. That is so much more directly for parents and for teachers, the thing that needs to be directly targeted. The, the sexual solicitation in many ways needs to be targeted at a different level. That needs, to be, that needs to be involving social workers, that needs to be involving law enforcement, that it needs to be involving also other kinds of structural um, allies. But in many cases, because the kids who are victims of sexual solicitation don't have positive home environments, parents are not always the best of intervention points at that. Um, whereas parents are your best intervention point when you're looking at bullying. And that becomes, that's much more likely to be a factor for, you know, across the board to affect your home than sexual solicitation. And anything on the content very briefly? Oh, um, con content. We've been talking about this for yeah. a long time. Content Has hasn't changed, changed much. Um, uh, the only thing that's, like, I mean, pornography numbers are 
relatively consistent. There's some ups and downs that go on. You know, you've got a mix of unwanted and wanted exposure. Your primarily unwanted exposure, um, it, it factors depending on age, but you have things like searching for the wrong thing, the email spam you get. Um, social network sites do not seem to be a huge contributor to the um, unwanted um, problematic con or pornographic content. We also sort of marked out that violent content um, is well under-researched, but um, is particularly of concern now that also teenagers are creating it. Um, and the other, you know, the other component of that with, co with content access is we're starting to see user-generated problematic content, youth-generated problematic content, which we sort of flag as something that a lot more work needs to be done. This is everything from pictures of self-harm, um, cutting, these types of things, to um, kids making their own pornographic content and you know, distributing either wanted or unwanted within the schools. So we flagged this. The, uh, the other... Um, Problematic content we do, we flag is um, child pornography, uh, which has a whole separate level of issue and the question of when and where do all of these other things interplay with the creation of child pornography. Um, and that, of course, has a whole nother bucket of legal and social um, issues, uh, you know, involved in it. Um, so we flag all of those within there. Cool. So, Dana, thank you. I know I violated my own rule of that we're talking for a while, but I think it's important to put the data on the table in a, um, in a contextualized and rich way. Um, so I want to turn to uh, my friend and our colleague, uh, Laura DeBonis, here for a moment. Laura um, is a longtime advisor to the Berkman Center um, and uh, longtime executive at Google, who is now a mom also, adding to her list of accomplishments. Um, and in her um, momhood and post-Google life, was the chair of the technical advisory board for the task force. And um, Laura, I wonder if I could turn the mic over to you to, I've already describe the process you went through getting the um, uh, submissions and the composition of the task force uh, uh, advisory board um, on technology, but maybe you could just describe in a brief form whether or not you think there are technologies out there that A, are in use right now and B, um, ought to be in use you know, over time to, to address some of the problems that Dana just laid out. Thanks, John. Is this on? It's actually for the webcast only. So oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Um, so the question was, are there technologies in use right now, and are there technologies that should be? <laughs> well, I, I think I might take a step back and say the, the tab overall with the submissions we received um, spent a lot of time thinking and considering um, the the it was essentially written documents that we got. So we were a little bit hampered in our ability to truly understand what the technologies were like and how they might function. That said, I think at, on the whole, we felt that all 40 of the technologies had something to recommend each and every one of them. But the problem was that none of them were 100% accurate or 100% reliable 100% of the time. Um, and that there were also some extensive issues with data privacy and security and how these things were being handled. Especially when you're thinking about youth data, you want to be incredibly careful who has access to it, how it's being treated, how it's being secured, that kind of thing. So there are lots of uh, collateral issues with each of the technologies. But fundamentally, I think that we felt that it was difficult, perhaps dangerous, <laughs> to suggest that implementing and using any one of these technologies, whether in isolation or with others, would 
wholly prevent any of the problems that Dana is talking about because none of them were 100% reliable 100% of the time. And if you read the documents that the document that we produced, we there's a lot of a lot of our recommendations are to that point. That said, there are several that are being used. Several of the age verification products are in place. MySpace is using Thank you. Sentinel. Um, and some of the uh, kind of net nanny type um, products are in use, obviously, by parents typically, um, with, you know, reasonable degrees of uh, usefulness, I would say. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the mandate was sort of find a technology that we can use that's sort of the 100% solution all the time. And we just never got to a point where we felt that we could put a stamp on any one thing and feel comfortable with an, a, a, a mandated implementation. Um, so just to clarify one note, um, one thing we asked each of the social networks to do was to write up what technologies they're using right now. And I think actually one of the important things that happened through this task force was to put on record eight different social networks and what they're in fact doing to protect kids using technology. And I think at least my reaction to that was there's a lot of very good innovation going on. They're using some things that they buy. So MySpace paying a company called Sentinel to identify registered sex offenders on their site and trying to remove them. Um, that's one example. Uh, Second Life use uh, Linden Lab being the company uses age verification for instance as one solution made by Aristotle and so forth so we have a sense of who's using what and um, what uh, get a sense of effectiveness from that but I think you also got a sense that there is real innovation in terms of um, development both in labs and in uh, in practice that over time as um, different combinations of technologies hold some promise to address some of these issues awesome um, so Dina Sacco I'm going to turn it over to you um, maybe you could talk us through um, the recommendations that we made, not in whole, but maybe just a little bit, um, uh, and, uh, and then pose a question for the group, if you would mind. So um, uh, what do you think um, coming out of this report should, in fact, uh, we be doing to protect kids? Sure. Thank you, John. Um, so the task force um, made a series of recommendations. We had a series of recommendations that were meant for um, what we referred to as the internet community, um, which is sort of the community writ large. Um, a series of recommendations for parents and caregivers, and a series of recommendations regarding the expenditure of resources, really, and where uh, additional resources might be best spent. Um, at the outset, I think our overarching recommendation was that while the technologies that the task force reviewed were um, all promising and that in some combination could help address some of the risks identified by the research advisory board that this was uh, that it was not uh, in anyone's best interest to um, endorse for the, for the attorneys general because remember this now was a report to the attorneys general from the task force for the attorneys general to endorse any one technology or set of technologies um, and that instead uh, such endorsement could be counterproductive to the sort of growth and development that the task force had really seen in this area both um, among the technology companies that submitted to us and um, at the social network sites themselves. Uh, because as John said, we got submissions from them and uh, most of the, many of them were part of the task force and uh, discussed a lot sort of what they were doing um, and what their plans were. Um, that being said, we did again make this series of recommendations which are laid out at the end of the report. 
Um, and one, I think, one of the strongest things that we thought was that, um, going to Dana's point about the research and the data, was that we need more research. I mean, that, yes, there is a lot of research that's out there. There's a lot that we know. We need to continue to learn uh, and learn as much as we can. And so that having um, more resources for research and having more um, data from law enforcement and from the entities themselves would be enormously helpful to really understanding what the risks are. Um, additionally, we recommended that the uh, internet service providers and other entities, the attorneys general, the academics, the educators, all continue to collaborate and work together on this problem. Because I think one of, for me at least, one of the most amazing things that came out of the task force was this group of 30, 29 <laughs> companies um, and groups sitting in a room and, and really communicating about these issues. And it was very apparent from the outset that everybody really deeply cared about enhancing youth online safety. Um, and while, you know, the task force may have had different opinions about the exact approach to take or exact ways that uh, things should be handled, to a fault, everybody was deeply committed. And so continuing that process, I think, was one of our most important recommendations. And for parents and um, caregivers, the most important recommendation was really to educate yourselves and to look at what's out there that you can use to help protect your kids and consider what's be the best fit for your family. But at the same time, to learn as much as you can about what your kids are doing online, about what kids in your community are doing online, and um, how you can be involved in communicating with your child about those things. Um, because at the end of the day, given the types of risks that the Research Advisory Board identified, education is really the most important aspect. And we have a site on educational resources Yes, from our website. So um, the very specific recommendations are all written out in the report, if anybody uh, cares Where to look the at them. Did you want to mention the resources? The resources. Oh, right. Well, I mentioned the um, research resources. <coughs> what oh, but else do you want to? Like getting, getting law enforcement involved at different levels. Yes. Oh, yes, right. One of the big things that we thought was that, um, or that the task force thought, was that um, not only should all these groups continue to collaborate, but that law enforcement should be involved and that other interested <laughs> parties like educators and like um, social services entities who really see the, the children and know them at the ground level need to be involved in, um, in the conversation and in helping to solve the problem. Okay. Will you put a question <laughs> on the table and then we can open it up? Can I ask you a quick one? You can. Right. What's your attorney general set out? Texas. Texas. Okay. Everyone asked that question. We should just say it at the beginning. Texas has like 51 with DC. Actually, they're about 52, and it's more complicated than that. On the IRC, on the IRC, David Weinberger said it was 50, but North Dakota acquired South Dakota. No, no. It's too good a line back here. So I think, you know, certainly people are free to ask whatever questions you have. I think the question that we'll throw out to the group is, given the risks that you've heard about, um, what do you think is the appropriate balance between using technology to address these risks and keeping the internet open and anonymous? And how do you uh, how do you marry that balance? Because obviously, child online protection is extremely important, um, and yet uh, there are countervailing issues, which some of which the report uh, tried to take into account. So this isn't exactly the question addressed by the task force. This is just a question that I'm throwing out at, at the Berkman Center lunch. <laughs> 
So we will use the mic just because it's being webcast. Um, who would like to jump in, respond to Dina's challenge, or uh, uh, on any other topic? Jean. I have more of a question. Um, <coughs> it sounds like what one of the things you're finding is that it, things are very context-specific. So uh, what Dana mentioned is is children who are already at risk are kind of you know, that, that there's different population, within the populations there's different levels of risk. And I'm wondering if one reason for the discrepancy between um, kind of the AG's uh, sense of what's going on and what the data shows is that maybe for your average um, youth, the risk levels may still be the kind of the same as it was before the internet, but that for those people who are at risk, the risks are now larger, both in terms of consequences or in terms of the actual, the chances of something bad happening, whether it's so if, if you're if most kids are kind of somewhat bullied, is it possible that the kids who are most bullied are now being bullied like 360 so that there's no escape from it from your you know whether it's your cell phone or your social networking? Um, so just for, for certain kinds of behavior, it's very clear that it goes a lot longer. I mean, this has been a technology problem in general, right? The moment that the telephone came into the household, all of a sudden phone-based bullying kicked in. And I don't know if how old everybody is in the room, but one of the things that was very clear from my, my memory is when three-way calling came in as a sort of tool of bullying, which was very, very clear in my childhood, which is, of course, calling somebody up and being able to listen in and spread rumors and all sorts of things. So there's a certain amount where, yes, the, the, the presence of Internet technologies means that there's an, an access to the social world all the time for good and bad. Um, the other thing, you know, it's not clear that... You know, f like a lot of not a lot of numbers around um, other form like predation and other things. It's not clear that the internet has made such a strong impact. But the thing that it is very clear is that the internet makes at-risk kids far more visible to those who are able to help them than ever was before. Because a lot of at-risk kids, unfortunately, are in at-risk settings with problems in, at their homes, problems in their communities, different economic poverty-related issues. And even social workers who are desperately trying to go and try to help these kids may not know who is at risk or who is doing really poorly unless teachers report them or other such things that happen within the home communities. What happens now is that kids who are doing poorly are extremely visible at every levels of doing poorly. They're extremely visible to the people in their community. They're extremely vi visible to law enforcement. They're extremely visible to social workers who are looking. Um, and the other component of that is that um, bullying, bullying in particular is a really interesting one where a lot of parents didn't know their kids were being bullied. Um, this is pre-internet related issue. And now parents can actually see it. Um, in ways that they weren't necessarily able to see it when it was happening in the locker rooms at school because they can see some of the, the ramifications of it on their profiles and whatnot. The question is, is, is when you can see it, do you think it's worse? Or when you can see it, do you have an opportunity to, to intervene in entirely new ways? And I think that what we're seeing is that a lot of people are, are seeing because they can see it, they think it's far more, far more magnificent and, and problematic as opposed to seeing it as an ideal opportunity to intervene. So do you think this is a predominant reason why um, your research been met by such opposition that it's outdated? Is that the major explanation, or is there something else that contributes to it as well, just as much? When I, went, when I was doing qualitative interviews around the US, 
and I would ask kids about um, sexual predators. Um, uh, without exception, they would reference Dateline. Without exception, they would point to an image of a predator that they had seen on TV. There is, at this point, a real cultural consistency that there are predators everywhere. And there's amazing track work done on the fact that fears have been increasing around predation separate from the internet. Um, fears have been increasing even though the data and the number of cases has not. Um, Gil Valentine, whose primary work is in the UK but also does some stuff in the States, has this amazing book called uh, on, the, on the Death of the Public Space and how we've started to fear the public space for our kids. So I, I see there's a sort of longer trajectory of an increased view that things are much, much worse. There's also this belief because you see Dateline or because of the, um, the stings that happen in relation to it that they, it must be everywhere. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of questions about how news has propagated that. So I think that there's a reason why people have these images that are off. Now, there's also this other question that I don't understand, which is about some of the politics behind this. And I will let JP deal with that. But there are <laughs> definitely politics behind this. And as an academic, I feel like I've been thrown into a complete political tornado and don't know how to make you know, heads or tails of anything. So I can't possibly answer the question why there would be one perception and then the, the data show something else. There's no way to describe that honestly and as a researcher. I will say that of all the things I've done as a researcher, as a teacher, this was the hardest. This was the meanest, the nastiest, the most personally difficult, I think because this is so highly charged, right? So I want to actually ask a, a question back to Dana, really as, as a parent, which is, let's imagine that you're quite right, that Dateline plus other um, uh, modes of um, uh, describing this issue have burned in our minds a higher degree of risk than there actually is for kids being preyed upon sexually, particularly when they go on social networks. As a parent, maybe we want an overabundance of caution. Maybe it's actually okay that we are aiming too high in terms of our fear. Why isn't it just, um, just fine if, in fact, these fears have been overblown um, or have even just remotely been described slightly worse than they are, such that we keep our kids away from what would be their and our worst nightmare? Um, so there's two different answers to your question or from different directions. One is that by locking all of our kids away and trying to protect them from all of the risks of the world, we do them a tremendous disservice. Um, we need to help educate our kids to interact with the dangers of the world from crossing the street on up and figure out how to do so and make decisions that are wise, report things when are necessary, and give them the tools to really be prepared to deal with the fact that the world is not always a safe and wonderful place. And I think that the more we try to sort of protect them, uh, you know, especially when risks that they're not actually seeing, the more that we don't give them the tools to actually deal with the risks that are out there. Um, and I, you know, I was deeply reminded of, of you know, uh, watching a lot, you know, as, uh, many of you are academics, so as, as scholars who are teaching, especially freshman classes, it's always a little shocking to deal with freshmen's, freshmen coming into the, to the university who have never really gone outside and all of a sudden are seeing freedom in a certain way for the first time. It's really disruptive as a professor. We've all seen this in different ways. Um, I think that this is a broader societal issue, that we, we have kids who are, don't know how to deal with these kinds of dynamics. So I think that we, the more we do this, we create a disservice. We also rupture trust, because one of the things I kept hearing from kids with this is that kids would be like, I don't know what my parent is talking about. I don't see these things as a problem. I'm not seeing this, so it must not be true my parents are lying to me. That's really not a healthy thing. Um, 
the other component, the flip side of it, is is that as as a society, we have this this sort of belief that parents' main role is to protect their own kids rather than also helping their kids interact with the communities. And I'm really worried that all of this has been about a hierarchical dissemination. So it's about it's about you know the the schools working with the teachers working with their kids. It's about the the you know society and law working with individual parents working with their kids. I really want parents to get engaged about what the actual risks are because even when their kids are perfectly fine and doing well, there are kids in their community that aren't, whose parents aren't looking out for them. And I feel like we have a, a, a societal responsibility to be really honest with ourselves about what's going on and to collectively work to help the kids who aren't okay. I mean, one of the big mis misunderstandings, I think, about this research report is that people, people are reading this to be like, oh, the kids are, every, every kid is all right. No, every kid is not all right. There are some kids who are deeply, deeply, deeply in trouble, and I think that we have a real moral responsibility to help them. And I think that that starts with parents knowing what the actual risk are and knowing how to find at-risk kids and help them. Esther, I'd love to hear whatever your question is, but I'd also love to hear um, if you wouldn't mind as a researcher commenting on the research that you've heard. You've been in the field as a quantitative researcher. I know this isn't exactly the squarely in the zone of what you've been paying attention to, but you certainly have heard from a lot of kids and, and whether what you're hearing from us squares with that or if you would amend it at all. Okay, uh, I'll comment briefly. I mean, I think it's... Uh, you guys have done really great and very helpful work. Um, I was trying to think, as you were talking about the reactions about the, oh, this is outdated, outdated. I mean, I get that so much too. And there's, I'd like to hear more about why these people think it's outdated because frankly, for most phenomena online, there's no proof that one or two years actually makes that much of a difference. Look at the dates on some of these studies. They'll say 2000, 2006, and one of the things we note is many of them predate the rise of the social networks as such a huge phenomenon. So one of the crucial things, of course, was Dana going back in to the researchers and say, you've been in the field subsequently, does anything not square with it? Um, but that the, it's primarily people looking at the dates of the studies and saying, if you're giving us data from 2000, that has nothing to do with the world of MySpace. We don't have a single study from 2000 that is about sexual solicitation. This is all the stuff that is setting up what is going on with the internet and the citations that are about what we know historically for for child pornography. I find it. it Dana, I am not your critic here. I'm saying that. <laughs> the studies, the studies that were, the studies that were actually, yeah, the studies that we're talking about are 2006 through on. Okay. Go ahead. Well, so anyway, I just, I mean, I, I find those reactions really frustrating as well in pretty much any realm of this work because it's just, it's this, it's this naive knee-jerk reaction as if the online world changed that quickly, and frankly, it really doesn't for the most part. I mean, there are just very few things that change that quickly. So I'd, and we will find out, but I would definitely push back with, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear more from those people what exactly they think is changing so much that you would have skipped if you're citing an 07 study. Question back, and the next question the thing is: We are in the field in social networks, and we put up those profiles, and we see people soliciting them. This is the exchange. That, yeah. So that it's. Pro I mean, yeah. So it's probably a question of how well those, like from a research perspective, if the, if those are really the right experiments to be running to, mm -hmm. to get at these issues. Um, the question I wanted to ask you is. Um, Especially now that you've, you know, as we talk about it in a larger context, in a larger context of um, how American children grow up, is the comparative international perspective? Because some, as someone who didn't grow up in the U.S., um, 
I mean, I know it's such a different experience and I'd be curious in the sense of this protection thing, right? Like, I, I mean, of course my parents protected me, but there, there wasn't this dependence on getting a ride to the mall and the only place where you can hang out, that kind of thing, and it's very American. And so I wonder how some of that then reflects in these, uh, just the, the fear and the rhetoric around this and, the, and how then other countries might be dealing with these issues and whether you see similar issues there. So, in doing the research, we looked at lots of onions, and uh, I call it onions because we would start with like our central with social network sites, and we onion out to the internet. Oh look, and so one. So one of the onions was that uh, everything here is really heavily in the U.S., but we did onion out and look at um, things across different uh, cultural contexts. The thing that's, that was striking to me um, in doing that and in talking to research, we also fed this. Uh, report and our full uh, research advisory board uh, right up to researchers who are doing this kind of research um, outside of the U.S. to say, can you can you look at this and see if we're seeing anything that's sort of radical? The thing that was really interesting is the U.K. is very similar, um, has a very similar set of dynamics, but as you start to go into Western Europe, you see you start to see totally different dynamics. Same with Australia and um, New Zealand. Some of it is that, is that kids' mobility is much greater. The thing that I found really fascinating is that um, when the further you get out from the U.S. and the U.K., the more meeting people online is completely acceptable um, and is not actually tainted with a notion of risk. Um, and it's assumed to be the thing that you do as a kid to meet people that are like more likely to be in your interests, to be sharing your interests. So there's a lot different sort of social connotation to meeting people online. And as a result, what you also see quantitatively is kids are much more likely to meet, to meet strangers online in other countries than they are in the U.S. Um, of all forms. Um, but it, it, doesn't up the, it doesn't up the case numbers at all. So kids are more likely to be meeting strangers, less connotation with it automatically being up. I mean, so we also did a lot of data on like when kids meet people, even if they're, they're not um, for sexual purposes. So they're much more likely to meet strangers online in other countries, um, and it's much, much less likely to be conceived of as a risk, and, but the numbers don't go up in terms of sexual harm. Um, but all the countries are starting to look at this. There's a European Commission. So I'll pass it down to Sarah Cortez in a minute. But first, a warm welcome to our founder, Professor Charles Nesson, who's come into the room. Delighted to have you here, Charlie. Always. Um, and just to say one further response to you, Esther. So one thing that was going on at the same time in an international setting was similar studies were happening. So there's a Canadian one that's been chartered. Um, there's one in the UK, the famous Byron Review, which came out actually, fortunately the, the work was done in the middle of our um, our process. We were, I met with Tanya Byron in, uh, in the UK and uh, co-presented with her and we had the benefit of their work. There was a European Union uh, Commission uh, process that actually ended uh, near the end of ours as well. And there's great consistency across these reports in terms of what we all think should be done. And I don't think that there's wild differences in terms of the risks that kids are, are facing um, uh, by and large. So we'll go to Sarah and then maybe around the, around the side. Thanks. So um, I work with a number of groups related to um, batterer intervention and victims of domestic violence. And two of the things that you said at the beginning of this talk um, correspond to recent research that a lot of people in that field have found. And I think what I heard you say is that the vast majority of abuse of children comes from within the home and from people that are related and friends, family. Do you think that one of the reasons that um, 
that the recipients are objecting to the results of this is because people find it more comforting to think of predators as unknown people out in cyberspace rather than look at the fact that a lot of predators are actually within the family is one of my questions. And the other question is that um, I can tell that you're very um, passionate about this topic and um, I'm not sure I'm completely clear on some of the points that you made at first. And you said that the recipients were objecting to some of the results and it seemed like, and you said that they were saying that the information was outdated and also it seemed like you were saying that the victim and predator profiles weren't matching the profiles that they had and they were saying that they don't correspond to arrest records. Can you clarify which victim and predator profiles are you talking about and which arrest records? Are they talking about, are they saying arrest records of known predators you know, are showing us that there's a lot more predators out there? Or, you know, are you saying that victim profiles of children who are victims are showing that their children who already have been victims of a lot of other violence and that they attract this type of violence? So maybe you could just clear that up. Sure. Um, so first going on that question, the, this is, with arrest records, they ask sort of, they get, they interview both the um, victim and the perpetrator and look at what the dynamics of that are. And so they're, they're looking at that. So, um, and I it can send you f all the full citations on it because I'm just trying to give an, a broad overview. But they're looking at the who, the, what the dynamic and the relationship is between the um, the abuser and the victim. Um, uh, for um, online related um, internet uh, sex crimes. Okay, so. It's not looking at all sex crimes altogether. No, just no, and they look crimes. for, and then for all sex crimes, if there's an internet component, comes into this as well. Okay. Um, and so there's that, which is looking at those dynamics. There's other, there's other broader studies about um, arrest records of all, all sexual um, harm, and that's where you start to see the fact that it's so heavily related. Um, unfortunately, one of the things we know, and I'm sure you've seen plenty of this, is that when it's in the home, it's also much less likely to be reported. <laughs> Um, unfortunately. So we also suspect that there are much huger numbers. Um, in that same vein, one of the things that we found disturbing there are starting to be some numbers and trends on is when and where the internet is used by family members to get at kids without the other parent knowing about it or without, or if it's like an uncle or somebody who's related who's not in the household who actually are targeting their own family members using the internet. So there's also an internet component to the longer trend of um, sexual harm, which is really disturbing to see. Um, so it's, n it's also, there's, the internet does not always equal stranger. Um, and there's assumption that the internet <coughs> and sexual crimes always equal stranger, and that's not true. Whether or not this is because it threatens, you know, people's own beliefs and not wanting to deal with it, I don't know. I'm. I don't want to make those projections. I'm concerned about it, of course, that that's a, it's a really valid point and it's really scary. Um, I, too, used to work, uh, I used to work for V-Day, which is known for uh, putting on the vagina monologues, but is primarily an organization to end uh, violence against women and girls. And one of the things that we saw that was really deeply disturbing to us when we started seeing data come in on the home stuff was the frequency with which um, s uh, sexual, abusers would marry single mothers as a way of getting in. We saw that coming up. And so we're starting to see these other factors that you sit there and it just makes your blood curl. And so I don't know how common these are. If this is why people don't, people want to keep it projecting out. I don't know what's going on there. I hope that they'll be willing to hear the fact that that's still a huge issue and turn inward as well.
So Dana, I promised to channel questions that I might get by email, and I got some. Um, what I got several from Scott McLeod, one of our friends uh, from afar. Doc, were you going to channel oh, Scott yeah. McLeod? Well, why don't you actually, do you have it right there? Oh, yeah, it's on the IRC. Okay, well, I've got it right here, so I'll, I'll do it then. Um, so, Scott, um, one of his questions is, um, what do kids say about protecting other kids? Uh, what technologies do they see or might create that might be useful? Uh, and what do kids say about protecting uh, their peers? You've talked a lot about the peer-to-peer -peer harm, Dana, but um, I don't know if anyone wants to, to take this, but um, uh, maybe start from the research, and if others want to jump in on it, uh, what do we hear from kids about protecting other kids? Interesting, the most common thing you hear from kids is uh, almost verbatim what, what the parents and teachers have told them that they should do. Um, so they will tell you that the way to be safe online is uh, to not put up identifying information. They'll tell you that the way to be safe online is um, to report other kids. It doesn't mean that they're actually doing it or listening, um, but they'll tell you that that's what they think is supposed to be, it's about to be safe online. Um, also, kids will say that, you know, you know, classic sort of statement is just don't be stupid, um, which I always find is sort of interesting advice. And part of it is that they're, they're, they're seeing a sort of difference between what they see as the risks and what their actual problems are going. They generally, like, it's really hard to get them to talk about um, what they think are good advice around bullying. Part of it is, is that a lot of kids don't necessarily identify what they're seeing or doing as what adults would call as bullying, right? You know, classic thing you know that I get from from my data, which is like, well, yeah, I stole my little brother's you know password and contacted all his friends, but he was being annoying. Right? You know, like that might not be the best of ideas. Um, and so they don't even identify these things as bullying. And that's why I think that there's a lot of education that has to go on because even the kids are not thinking about what the effects of that peer-to-peer -peer related stuff are. And there's not a lot of conversations. So most of the conversations are still. Uh, really focused on predation, even in the schools, and they're focused on like one narrative of bullying. There are certainly a lot of great nonprofits, many of whom worked with us on this, who are trying to do more inventive stuff. But the kids, the kids often don't even know how to deal with the bullying themselves in the schools or what are good interventions. And the predation is really difficult because they don't see it. They only hear about it. So it's really tricky to see that. I was just going to point out that um, at least one member of the task force, wiredsafety.org, had, uh, has a group of um, teenagers, they call them the Teen Angels, who um, do research and presentations for other kids about these issues. Um, and that they found that um, an effective way to get kids to be willing to talk about it and um, to be willing to listen. So they're linked on our site as well um, and are a helpful resource for people trying to understand that aspect. I got a lawyer's question. Um, you mentioned the critics claiming that your data is outdated, uh, that you underestimate the, the risks, and let's assume for a while that they write. Now, my question is, what are the alter, uh, alternatives, considering that uh, ever since DCA in 1996, the courts have been very consistent in saying that, the, that because of the First Amendment, the requisite standard for any legal action is one which is narrowly tailored. Uh, in Europe, we would call them, we would call it uh, proportional. Now, in fact, it translates to to the conclusion that it's the parents' job to take care of what the kids uh, are doing online and offline, and that's it. 
that in fact the government, because of the censorship issue, uh, cannot really prevent here much, cannot really uh, uh, introduce legal measures. So what do the uh, critics suggest uh, those that don't believe you? So as this is a lawyer's question, I'll start, and if Dina wants to take it from the other side, that's good. Um, so you're quite right to note the Communications Decency Act um, as one possibility. The CDA really was designed to address only one of these three concerns in particular, right? So it's a content-related statute, not so much some of the other areas. And I actually think that's where a problem lies. So um, this is not a suggestion from critics of our report, but a suggestion from me. Um, my friend Urs Gasser, new, newly the executive director here, uh, and I wrote a book called Born Digital. And in that book, we made an argument that um, in fact, the, the part of CDA that's still standing, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, um, actually ought to be amended. So um, this is unpopular among our colleagues in the Internet um, law space in some respects. Uh, CDA 230 provides immunity for those who are um, uh, intermediaries between uh, people who say things and, um, and uh, the rest of the world. It is a statute that works very, very well in the defamation space. It's an incredibly important statute. Our colleagues at the CMLP, for instance, spend a lot of time talking about the CDA 230 and why it's so crucial in the media space. Um, it's been uh, interpreted, though, as something that extends far beyond what I think it was intended to do when it was um, drafted and uh, enacted and then upheld uh, through the Supreme Court challenge to the CDA. Um, so here's an example. There's a famous case um, involving MySpace uh, and the um, uh, person harmed is named Julie Doe in this case. Uh, not really, but that's the uh, name of the case. Uh, she was one of the young people who had very similar story to the, the sexual predation um, issue right at the core of this report where she met somebody in on MySpace who um, then did harm to her offline. That person um, was convicted, but um, when the child's parents sued MySpace, um, the judge agreed with MySpace that they were shielded from any liability for the harm to that child because of Section CDA, uh, Section 230 of the CDA. Um, my view is that that wasn't what CDA was meant to do. I think MySpace probably wasn't liable in that case. I think they probably weren't negligent given how much they've done to protect kids, but I think they should have had to face that music just like anybody else under the tort law. So uh, one suggestion that I would have back is I think, in fact, the law ought to be amended in certain ways. There are people in this room who are about to hit me for saying this. It's a very popular um, statute in some respects, but I think it's been extended and interpreted, perhaps correctly in terms of what's written in the statute, but not necessarily to protect kids. Um, some of the other legal reforms one might consider um, perfectly lawful under the First Amendment um, in many respects would be uh, to mandate some technologies if you were a, a, a social network, for instance. So um, the one of the things that prompted this work, and I think which goes to the question of why was this ill-received, in some states, um, attorneys general have promoted the mandating of age verification technology, for instance, um, in, in past sessions. Um, and uh, that would be a way to say, if you want to provide a certain service, you need to protect kids in the following way. You might have a First Amendment challenge or otherwise in some cases, but um, you could imagine a version of that law that would be lawful um, under the Constitution. Um, our argument in the task force report, and that which I don't think anybody disagreed with when you look at the end of our report, was you shouldn't mandate any technology at this point. There's not enough evidence that it's going to help that a mandate's a good idea, but you should continue to put pressure. So my argument would be don't mandate a set 
technology, but have a mechanism to ensure that social networks and other intermediaries are not negligent. Um, and I would argue taking away the shield of 230 um, to give them the incentive to compete on safety, to compete on kids' safety. So that would be one, one layer's response to your question. Um, we might have one or two more questions. We'll go here and then if someone else has a hand up. Um, thank you. It's sort of a follow-on to what you were just saying about um, you don't feel, well, the um, team said that they wouldn't be comfortable um, recommending any particular technology. Um, first off, was that just a sensible decision considering you were dealing with 30 companies, some of whom are the biggest in the world? Um, and secondly, if you couldn't recommend a technology, could you recommend a standard similar to an ISO standard, which any hypothetical technology would need to meet? Yeah, so I'll take that one too. Um, so, to be clear, um, uh, the, the members of the task force um, I'm going to put up here um, do include some large technology companies who probably would not like to have a mandate um, placed on, but it also includes um, uh, lots of child safety organizations. Um, I would note National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has no incentive other than to protect kids. Um, I'll say for the record, I have no incentive but to protect my six-year-old and my three-year-old. That's why I did this. I was a volunteer, I got no money, nobody paid me to say anything or do anything. This was on top of my regular job. I have no incentive to do anything other than to protect kids. And I think there are lots of others who are in that similar position. I'd also note that many of these companies, probably a third of them, sell technologies in this space. We asked anybody on the task force to dissent if they care to or to support the findings. The last um, uh, 20 pages or so of the report, all these dissents, nobody, not even those who sell the technologies, dissented from the statement that we shouldn't mandate a technology. Okay, so I think fundamentally there was this, this sense that um, we um, didn't think at this moment there was enough evidence to support one to make it, in fact, um, the right way to go. So was that responsive? Um, yes, but um, also the potential standards, did you feel that those... Um so I, I would state more strongly than Dina did the first recommendation that we, we suggested. So um, I think that the next best step, and I think that the companies um, ought to, and in fact maybe should be prompted to, take next steps based on what we found to talk about standards in this way, to talk about ways to exchange data, for instance. So um, one example here could be to say, look, we need to find a way to identify what these risks are and share data among firms so that we have a better picture of it um, and that we can tailor our responses to that. I think there should be a um, published best practices for protecting kids in different environments. I think one of the advantages of going through the process we did of having people note what they were doing is you, you now can go on and compare the safety measures that Facebook <coughs> is taking to MySpace to loop to... Um, so I actually think if we could figure out a mechanism to have a forcing function um, to standardize to what, whatever it might be, provide an incentive to use the best technologies to protect kids at all times that's flexible and that has, to some extent, the sort of Damocles behind it. I actually think that the attorneys general and others are right to say, if you don't take care of this yourself, industry, or at least, at least be cred uh, credible players in this as community members, we will come in and regulate you. I actually think that's really important that there is that pressure point. So I think that, yes, coming out of this, we need a more um, discrete series of steps. I hope they will follow our recommendation one and do it. Um, and whether it has an ISO-like quality or W3C-like, wh whatever it might be, um, I think there needs to be some push to this is what's good for kids. Um, and if you are a social network or an ISP, this is what you can do. So last one. Okay. <coughs> no, actually it's good that you mentioned the best practice because my question was exactly related to that. 
I'm originally from Brazil, and the public defense uh, people there, they also asked for the ISP providers to comply to certain uh, what they were calling best practices, you know, and Google is having a lot of trouble with that right now in Brazil. <laughs> uh, and now, parallel to this effort, there, uh, we just had in our, a change in our criminal law, criminalizing pedophilia in the internet and some actions, and there is another law being discussed, it's uh, putting a lot of responsibilities in the back of the ISP providers, uh, such as keep the data for a certain amount of years and, and some other uh, that gonna represent a lot of cost for them. So I, my question was exactly related to best practice. You know, are there emerging best practice or standardized best practice that are emerging and could help the judicial system to look uh, into the ISP responsibility with a kind of another eyes, you know? So I think this is precisely what we're calling for in our first recommendation, is that I think we need a mechanism to say, at this given moment, here are the risks that kids face, and here are the best approaches that one can take if you want to be protective of them, whether you're an ISP or you're, um, uh, you know, or parents, for that matter, or schools, um, because we know that these are all intervention points that can work. I would add to it the possibility of liability, if in fact you are making money off of this um, kind of service without putting in place something, you know, reasonable based on those standards. The other thing that you mentioned was updating existing laws rather than passing new ones to ensure that the crimes that happen with an internet mediation somehow are um, in fact something that law enforcement can enforce. I completely agree with that. So when we are asked, as we are frequently by um, legislatures or others in other countries to say, how should we update our law? I think the answer usually is, okay, what's you know, what are the harms here? What are the risks to kids? You probably have already outlawed pedophilia. Just make sure that when somebody is prosecuting that law that they have the tools and the skills to do it, but also the legislative hook um, to get somebody. And I suspect this is something that um, uh, Dina would agree with as a prosecutor, but why don't I give you the last, last words, uh, especially in case you don't. Yeah. that they adopt, you know? Were there any mass crossing this practice that the participants adopt mm -hmm. and how they can be replicated by other companies? This was my question, or this is like the next step of the task force. If your answer is, is there a written map other than our 278 page document, not to that I know <laughs> of. Um, I, my, sense, my sense would be that in our first recommendation, what we were calling for is, an, in essence, an ongoing series of these maps, depending on who you are and what kind of kids are using it and what kinds of risks that they're facing, that basically say these are you know, good or best practices you know, to protect kids using technology and using other things. Um, I completely agree with John. Um, I think that it's people, um, since the report came out, there's sort of been this tendency to say, oh, the report said there's no problem and doesn't want us to do anything. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite. The report doesn't say that. The report is simply identified what the risks are. It's not saying that there aren't risks. It's just saying that the nature of the risks might be different from what people anticipated the nature of the risks might be before we saw the data. Um, and while we, uh, while the task force took to the, the position that um, no particular technology or set of technology should be endorsed at this time, it very clearly set out a lot of different things that the task for force believes should happen to help move the ball towards protecting kids online. Um, so that's my last word. 
Well, I just want to say um, thank you to everybody for this conversation. We leave this work as the task force, um, believing this to be a community-oriented topic, something that we all have to work um, for together. So um, personally, I want to thank my um, co-directors and Jess Tatlock, the coordinator, and um, Laura DeBonis, uh, and everybody else who worked on the task force. I'm glad that we have done it together and is also behind us. Um, but I look forward to, uh, with all of you uh, to working on the next steps. So thank you very much. Thank you.